I want to describe a condition to you, and you see if you can figure out uh, its cause, all right? It affects 70 a million Americans and is faulted for 38,000 deaths each year. It costs the United States $70 billion annually in lost productivity. According to research, 64% of teenagers struggle with it, and it's a major cause of poor school performance. Research also indicates that the most severe cases actually occur between ages 30 and 40. Research says the conditions impact over 50% of those who live past the age of 65. Treatments involve everything from drugs and herbal medications to machinery. Chemical abuse, marital issues, long sermons, no, insomnia. Americans can't sleep. Why? Because of the stress, pressure, fear, anxiety that we face, most of which seems to come to us because of conflicts. It may be financial conflicts. It may be governmental conflicts. What's the government going to do to interfere with my life next? Uh, international conflicts, the wars and skirmishes that send our young men and women to fight in our behalf. Uh, but most of all, it comes from personal conflicts with other people, family, friends, coworkers, bosses, neighbors, and even people that we consider to be adversaries. All of these conflicts result in stress, pressure, fear, and anxiety. And when you feel that way, a good night's sleep is hard to come by. And when you can't rest, it only exacerbates the conflict. So it is a vicious cycle. If you've ever had a conflict with another person, then you know how many sleepless nights that can cause due to our various personality traits, our likes, our dislikes, our opinions, our outlooks, our styles, our goals, our dreams, conflicts are inevitable. They are an expected, albeit unwelcome, part of life. But if you think you're going to skate through life without any conflicts, <laughs> you're living in some kind of a dream world. I wish all could be resolved. Not all will be resolved. That's unrealistic because there's two, at least two parties involved in any conflict, and, and, and the other party may not be willing to work at a resolution. But you do have to learn how to manage them. They may not always be resolved, but they do need to be managed. And as much as we would like to believe that conflict is absent from the church, life and history tells us that that's simply not true. You know there's all kinds of stories about conflict in, in the church. Such is the case of, of what the Bible records. As a matter of fact, the Bible talks about lots of conflicts in it, which, by the way, is one of the reasons why I love the Bible and I believe it to be God's Word, because if I was writing a work of fiction, and I just wanted to inspire people about the church, I'd leave all the garbage out. I'd leave all the conflicts out. I'd only write about the heroes in the good sense, and I'd only tell the good stories. But God doesn't do that. He includes all the conflicts. Sometimes it's with the Bible biggies, the heroes of the Bible that have some of the worst conflicts, and I'm so glad he put it there because then that way I can learn from their examples, and I can learn how they solve theirs. And, and and one of those uh, we're going to read about in Acts chapter 15. Now, it occurs between Paul the Apostle and his good friend Barnabas. Now, remember, Barnabas was the guy when Saul of Tarsus was first converted to Christianity. Remember, Saul was the one that persecuted the church. And when he was first converted, nobody wanted to have anything to do with him because, you know, well, he's the guy that's persecuting us. This is a scam. He's going to embed himself inside the church, and then he's going to just destroy the church from the inside out. I'm not having a thing to do with that Saul of Tarsus. Barnabas said, you know, I, th I think it's a real thing. 
I'm going to take him. I'm going to work with him. I'm going to mentor him. I'm going to take him under my wing. I'm going to take him under my advisement. I'm going to counsel him. I'm going to help Paul along. Now, that's what Barnabas did for Saul of Tarsus, who became the great apostle Paul. God changed his name, you know. And then they go on this tremendous missionary journey and plant churches all over. And it's an exciting move that, that they do together. And then in Acts chapter 15, beginning verse 36, this is what we read. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the brothers in all the towns uh, where we preach the word of the Lord and, and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think that was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. That was on a previous missionary journey. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, if the great apostle Paul and the godly leader Barnabas, whose nickname Barnabas means son of encouragement, if these guys struggled with conflict, then not a soul in this assembly this morning will escape it. Like a ticking time bomb, a relatively stable relationship can explode when exposed to stress. A careless word, a thoughtless deed, an unpredictable turn of events can trigger and detonate a charge that makes relationships explode and sends us reeling. And when we finally get back up on our feet, we think, what in the world has just happened? So what is it that causes those kinds of conflicts to erupt in life? Well, sometimes it's a clash of interests. You, you look at something this way and somebody else looks at it from a different way and, and, and your interest, your goals in mind, they, they just don't mesh. There's a conflict. Uh, a, a classic example of that is always the, the clash between management and labor. Management's always concerned about the profits of the company. Labor's always concerned about what their benefits are and their salary is. The, the, the two hardly ever come together harmoniously because they have a clash of interests. In the church at Philippi, we had two ladies, when Paul writes uh, the book of Philippians, two ladies, Yodia and Syntyche, who couldn't get along. Now, the Bible doesn't say that one was right and the other one was wrong. Paul doesn't say, yoke fellow, you, you get Yodia to concede because Syntyche's right on this. He just says, tell them to get along in Christ. I, I think it's because they had a conflict of interest. We're not told what it was, but it had become known to everybody and even to Paul, who was in prison at the time. And so sometimes we need to work past these clashes of interest. That's exactly what divided Paul and Barnabas. They had a clash of interest on, on whether John Mark should come with them or not. It doesn't make it right or wrong. It's just what causes the conflict. Sometimes it's misunderstanding due to lousy communication. That too could have been the problem between Yodi and Syneke. They just may not have been communicating well. And when you get misunderstandings involved, it's really hard to find resolution. Because once we misunderstand something, it's hard to back up and get rid of that misunderstanding and start all over again. Sometimes it comes up because there is a heritage of conflict. Some conflicts erupt out of the blue, so it seems. You know, everything's going along just fine, then all of a sudden, kaboom! And, and, and you think, what happened here? Well, what you may not realize is that for some people, conflict re resides just barely under the surface. And all it takes is the wrong word or the wrong phrase or a wrong memory. And all of that just erupts back to the surface. And so what happens in the explosion may not really have to do with what you're talking about. It may have to do with the past. And maybe you thought that was all resolved and taken care of. Maybe you've long forgot about the problem, but they haven't. 
And because of this heritage that they're hanging on to, there's an explosion. And then the biggest reason, I think, why we have so many conflicts goes back to what we don't like to talk about. And it's simply this, our sin. Many conflicts in life are the result of sinful choices or sinful behavior that impacts others around us. When we make sinful choices, it does not just impact and affect us, it impacts the people that we love. James writes this in his letter. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires to that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. James is saying, your motives are wrong, your behavior's wrong, your attitude's wrong, your actions are wrong, and that's what's causing all this quarreling and conflicts within your ranks. Now, thankfully, God's Word provides both examples and wisdom on dealing with this. You know, when Jesus, in most of his sermons and lessons, he spoke against what the culture really believed. When, When Jesus said, go the second mile, Turn the other cheek, love your enemies. Whoever would be first must become last. Do to others what you want others to do to you. Do you realize if we practice just those things, we wouldn't have most conflicts that we have? And in in the same Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. He has called us to be peacemakers, an action which is to resolve those burning conflicts. I don't know about you, but I I detest conflict. I suspect most of us in this room do. I I just want to avoid it if I can. Um, And because conflict is so painful and because we do try to avoid it, oftentimes our actions to resolve it are, are pretty inadequate. It's pretty pitiful sometimes the way we do it. In any congregation, it's true, but especially in a congregation this size, with all of the opinions and thoughts and likes and dislikes and the way we're all wired, it is impossible to think that everybody is going to like everything and that there aren't going to be any conflicts of opinions in a place like this. (laughs) Folks, with everything that's going on, you're not going to like everything. I don't like everything that goes on here. I don't even like all the sermons that I preach, people. So, so I want you to know that, that in an environment like this, it's okay that we don't see everything eye to eye. But if we let the conflicts erupt in such a way that they divide us or destroy us, then, then we have a problem. You see, sometimes we deny that there's even a problem. That's, that's not the way to handle it. Sometimes we fight or we flee. We, 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 uh, we run away from the problems. And then there are times when we do fight and we escalate the problems. Jesus never handled them that way. He never denied that there was a conflict. He never ran away from a conflict. And he never escalated the conflict for selfish gain. So we need to follow his example and the principles of his word. And I, I'm going to give you some of those principles this morning uh, that, that will help with conflict. Now, can I tell you this? I am not sharing any of this with you because I have all of this figured out myself. Most of the sermons I write, I write for me. I just let you listen in when I go through them, okay? So I'm not talking to you this morning as one who has all this handled. I've struggled with a lot of these areas. I just know that these principles work because they're biblical principles, and if we'll practice them, it'll make a difference. So here they are. Be united when and where you can. When you've got a conflict with somebody else, try to find common ground. Be united with that person when and where you can. Many times we face conflicts that are with other people in the body of Christ. And sometimes those conflicts can be intense. 
Now, I want you to remember something, because I think this will make it easier when we start to look at resolution. If, if you've got a problem with somebody else in the church, would you first remember, you know what, that person loves Jesus Christ just as much as I love Jesus Christ. Maybe they love him even more than I do. And suddenly you, you, you can at least say this, you know what, we have common ground there. We can be united on that, which is the most important thing there is. The fact that they love the person that you love the most in this world and that you are committed to the same Lord and Savior, that's a great common ground to start with. And suddenly it, it puts perspective, the, the conflict that we have. So remember when you're dealing with that person, they love the Lord as much as you do. And on that foundation, you begin to seek a resolution. And as you're working on that resolution, if in the discussion the evidence comes up that maybe your idea wasn't the best or maybe your perspective isn't quite accurate, then concede that and unite behind what is accurate, all right? Don't get defensive and say, well, I don't care if it is right or wrong. You know, I, I, I can't let go of what I said. Sometimes my view is skewed by my own biases. Sometimes my view is skewed because of my own painful experiences. I don't always have the best ideas. I don't always have the best thoughts. Nobody does. So for you to suggest that you're always right, if I say I'm always right, well, well I am always right, but you know how that goes. Isn't that the way we always feel? Oh, we're always right. Well, we're not. We're not always right. We don't always see things clearly. And when Satan can keep us divided in the body of Christ, it's a victory for him and a defeat for the Lord because how I handle conflict is a reflection upon my witness for Jesus Christ. And when compromise cannot be reached, you may have to go your separate ways, but go your separate ways pleasantly and positively. Sometimes it just comes because you're wired differently. Look at Barnabas. He was a forgiving, encouraging, second chances kind of guy. You know, he gave Paul the chance that nobody else would. He's going to give John Mark the same second chance. I see potential in this young man. He's a relative of mine. I can work with him. And Paul at this point in time is direct and maybe a little abrupt. He's intense because the work of the kingdom is so impressed upon his mind and heart. There are so many souls to reach. He said, I don't have time to deal with quitters. I don't have time to, to work with somebody like that. And yet I want you to know that Paul was open to the restoration of any of that relationship and, and the resolving of those conflicts. And I want you to know that Barnabas did his work with John Mark because John Mark becomes a tremendous tool. And toward the end of his life, in the letters to Timothy, Paul writes, he says, and bring John Mark with you, will you? Because he is helpful to me in my ministry. You see, that's the way you work at it. You leave the door open so the resolution can come and you don't part your ways harshly. God used both men effectively. Two different styles of leadership, but two great servants of God. And you know what? Out of, out of the bitterness of that conflict, God made two missionary teams instead of one. Even God can take hard times and make them blessings. Well, here's something else. Be ceaseless in your effort to understand. Uh, last week, I spoke with uh, a, a local psychologist by the name of Dr. Louise Miracle and asked her about stress-related anxiety and conflict in relationships because she works with people like that a lot. And in this matter of understanding, she said it is important to, quote, listen to understand, not to react. Now, in about a half a dozen words, she has summed up this important principle. Listen to understand, not to react. Most of the time, we're listening in the conflicts uh, to how am I going to respond to that? How am I going to react to that instead of trying to really understand where the other person is coming from? So oftentimes, 
when we, when we hang on to what's not true, when we hang on to misunderstood things, we never get it resolved. Back in the early 1960s, the music group Peter, Paul, and Mary came out with a, a hit song, Puff the Magic Dragon. Now, growing up in the 60s, I, just, I thought that was a great song, Puff the Magic Dragon. And then people began to talk about, oh, that, that's a song about marijuana. You know, the dragon is, is marijuana, and puff is, of course, what you do on a joint and all this kind of stuff. They went through the whole song, and, and for the ensuing years, Peter Yarrow has tried to dispel that rumor and, and to relate to the folks that, that listen that there is no truth to that. He said many people thought the song was about drugs, but it never was. It never has been intended to be. It was simply a song about a boy and his imaginary dragon and the sorrows of leaving the innocence of boyhood behind as you grow older. It is what it is. It's a song about an imaginary dragon and a boy. It's not, there's no hidden message or meaning. And yet the rumors persist and people continue to believe it because they have not been gracious enough and ceaseless enough to try and understand the truth. That happens in marriage a lot. You know, we, we just don't understand where each other's coming from. After a, a big marital spat, Steve and Sally were trying to find a way to resolve the conflict. And finally, Steve said to his wife, he said, all right, here, here's the deal. I will admit that I'm wrong if you'll admit that I'm right. And Sally agreed. She said, you go first. And Steve says, I'm wrong. To which Sally said, you are so right. <laughs> now, there's a case where the intentions just didn't match up. And there was not a ceaseless effort to try and understand. Well, here's another one. Be controlled in your tone. You know, you can say the right words, but if you say it with the wrong tone, the right words don't matter. The tone communicates everything. Angry and hateful tones will often come back to, to haunt you. Um, modern medicine now docu has documented proof that emotions such as bitterness and anger can cause headaches and backaches and allergic disorders, ulcers, high blood pressure, and heart attacks. Anger is an emotion that destroys. The contention between Paul and Barnabas, the Bible says, was sharp, but it was never angry. It was never out of control. It was a controlled con uh, concession and decision. So, <clears throat> be controlled in your tone. And then be careful in your words. One study using microphones placed in rooms where boys ages 2 to 4 and girls ages 2 to 4 were playing, you know, separately, individually, uh, it was recorded that 100% of the little girl's com uh, um, speech was conversational. Everything that was recorded, of the, it was all conversational, whether it was with another little girl in the room, whether it was with an imaginary person sitting at the little table, it was 100% conversational. When the little boys were taped, only 60% of the boys' speech was conversational. 40% was unintelligible noise. <laughs> now, now understand, understand. When little boys play, they make airplane sounds, truck sounds, car sounds, gun sounds, tank sounds, trucks, you, you name it. We're always making sounds, you know, we're replaying it all that way. So it, it's not a right or wrong. The same study went on to show that, that women speak about 35,000 words a day. Men speak about 20,000 words a day, almost half of that. And you wonder why there is a conflict in marriages when it comes to communication. <laughs> One of the fellows after first service was over this morning said, I've heard those statistics before, and I've been told that women have to say things twice because the men won't listen. That's why they talk twice as much as we do. I don't know if that's true. I do know this, 
that it's difficult to communicate in a marriage because we're wired differently. So be careful with your words. And here's something else when it comes to words. It's important in managing conflict that you use carefully chosen words. Too often when we're angry and we're upset and we're, we're in, a, in a discussion with somebody and it's a, one of those conflict kind of uh, uh, conversations, we'll say things like this. You always say it that way. Or you never think about my needs when you're talking. Or you're always on his side or her side. And the minute you say you always or you never, it's like pointing the finger and the wall of defense goes up and, and suddenly you begin to defend yourself. I don't always it's not that I do this, I, you know, it's I, I, that I'm never going to do this, and we're defending ourselves. Now, if you would approach the same, you can say the same thing, you can say it altogether different, and you can say it this way. I feel like when you say things that, that don't meet my needs, you don't care about how I think. Now, you can't argue with the way somebody feels. You know, you can say, I I'm sorry you feel that way, or I'm sorry if I've made you feel that way, but you can't say, oh, you don't feel that way. <laughs> you know, there's no defense there, okay? When you say, you never, I can defend that, you know. But when somebody says, I feel this way, or, or you can say it this way, it seems to me that, well, you can't argue with it seeming to somebody that way. And suddenly, that brings it into a dialogue about working through it, not a an offense and defense that is so damaging. It's much harder to argue with somebody's feelings than an accusation. And the whole, all I'm talking about is really summed up in one great verse in Proverbs. If you, if you can remember this one, you've got it all made. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Isn't that great? Now, don't tell me the Bible isn't relevant to everything and every aspect of our lives in some form or fashion. That's good stuff. Here's another principle. Be quick in your efforts. The longer you wait, the worse the matter can become, and the longer the healing time will take. You and I are not perfect, and everybody already knows that I'm not perfect and you're not perfect, so let's just deal with it. If you've contributed to the conflict, and let me tell you, you have contributed to the conflict. You can't have a conflict unless both parties are contributing to it. You take the high road and be quick to address the concern and seek to resolve the conflict. Because if you wait on the other person, it may not happen. You, you do that. You take that. Conflict is like a raging fire, and the longer it burns, the greater its destruction. And it leaves nothing but devastation in its wake. Now, you may not realize this. Some of you weren't even here to remember this. Some of you were. But yesterday marked the 20th anniversary of the fire that destroyed the building down the street on Winslow Road, our, our church building, before we moved up here. And uh, if you remember that uh, event, you, you'll know how devastating a fire can be. If, if you were not here at that time, I, I want you to just see this. It's a little bit of church history. It'll help you uh, tie your roots in here a little bit better. And the voices that you're going to hear are John Robertson uh, and, and Ralph Haycraft. But just take a look at these pictures and think about how devastating a raging fire can be. I remember it quite well because it was three o'clock in the morning when our neighbors called us and told us that the church was on fire. And of course, Jane and I immediately came over to see if there was anything we could do. But when we got over here, the flames were broke out all over the place and everybody was gathered around and you had such a helpless feeling 
You know, there's nothing we can do. We just stand here and watch it burn. Uh, and I remember driving up Winslow and all that water coming down that hill as, uh, mm -hmm. as I was driving up and it just, just made you sick. It seemed like that's the Sunday I heard this time and time again. Tom preached a sermon, I believe on Sunday night, uh, about the church is not the building, the church is the people. And I heard that all day. I heard that as, uh, was that a prophecy? Was that a, you know, what was that all about? And, and, uh, but there was a, that was a real strengthening encouragement. It was on the top of the news. Every time you turned the radio on, that was the lead story. Uh, but the thing that I remember the most was at the end of the day, we were all exhausted and um, it just, we just drained and uh, we all gathered around for this prayer circle, the whole church. And Tom started it and, and got choked up. And uh, there just wasn't a dry eye. I just remember all the heads going down. And we knew this is a defining moment. This, this is, you know, we, we've talked and dreamed, but this is, uh, this would set back a lot of churches, but we just had this feeling that we're gonna, no matter what, from this point on, we have to work together. But I think part of what you said too shows the strength of the church that we had at that time, that we were able to jump right in, take off and start doing something. And that's why we're here today and why we're as strong as we are today. The very next Sunday, was uh, down at the high school. It was such a powerful experience of us coming together, just that we're gonna get through this, great things are gonna happen, and um, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. This is an incredible place to be. Sometimes the church has to go through a tragedy to see how strong they are. Seeing those pictures, I can smell the smoke. It just brings back the memories so powerfully how devastating a fire can be in a matter of moments and hours. That which seems so permanent is gone so quickly. The same thing happens in our relationships. That which you thought was so lasting may be gone in a breath with the wrong word, with the wrong thought, with the wrong intention. The writer of Proverbs in, verse, in chapter 26 says, without wood a fire goes out. Without a gossip, a quarrel dies down. As charcoal to embers and as wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome person for kindling strife. I hope you're not kindling for the fires of conflict. Here's another principle. Be gracious in your approach. When a conflict arose in the early church between the Jewish and the, and the Greek Christians, why the, the church in Jerusalem took the lead and they sent a special letter and they sent extra people there to resolve the conflict so that the two churches would be one. And when Priscilla and Aquila were listening to Apollos preach and they knew that Apollos was saying something wrong, they didn't stand up in the assembly and confront him. They took him to their home and they treated him with hospitality and then they taught him the way of the Lord more accurately. You see, be gracious in your approach when you have a conflict with someone else. I like what Abraham Lincoln wrote. He said, he has the right to criticize who has the heart to help. Criticism can be a helpful tool if it's offered with the right heart and the right spirit. Now, all that said, remember this too. You cannot resolve the conflict on your own. Some people refuse to work with you no matter how badly you want to work it out. They just don't want to let go of the grudge they're hanging on to. And in such cases, you can do everything and still not end up with the answer you're looking for. But I'm here to tell you, you do everything in your power anyway so that you can look in the mirror and say, there isn't anything more I can do. I did everything within my power. And when you do that, you'll be able to sleep at night 
That may not be resolving your conflict, but that's managing your conflict. And then always leave the door open. So if there's a change of heart on the other end, they know that they can walk through the door and be resolved with you. Bob Lowry, who was a professor, Dr. Bob Lowry, uh, professor at the Lincoln Christian Seminary, who died recently of cancer much too soon because of his greatness, talked about the umbrella of mercy. When you approach somebody with an idea or a perspective or a conflicting thought, always approach them under the umbrella of mercy. Say, I'm coming to you under an umbrella of mercy. I may not be right. My opinion may be wrong. I may, I may lack some understanding in this, but I, I'm coming to you under this umbrella of mercy. And suddenly when a person approaches you like that saying, I may be wrong, I may not have all the facts, I may misunderstand, you can have a dialogue. Now, now, now tell me, which is the best side to stay dry, the right side or the left side of the umbrella? The front or the back of the umbrella? Doesn't matter. As long as you're under the umbrella, you're going to stay dry. And when you can get somebody to join you under the umbrella of mercy and have a dialogue about the issue, both of you conceding, you know, we got some things to learn here. We got some things to work through. Let's do it under this umbrella of mercy because neither one of us may be totally right. Neither one of us may be totally, totally wrong. But you hear me say what I'm saying under the umbrella of mercy. Cut me some slack if I'm out of line. And if we will do that, you'll be amazed at how much easier it is to work through the problems. After all, we live under this umbrella of mercy that God has provided through Jesus Christ who solved the greatest conflict of our lives, the conflict of sin. If you're here this morning and you're still dealing with that one, I'm here to tell you no other conflict will be able to be resolved until you resolve this one. That's why we give you an opportunity to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior because he's extended to us the mercy of eternity. While we stand, while we sing, you come to him.